This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to this special edition of The Lead, White House in Crisis. We begin with breaking news. Sources are telling me that the anonymous senior Trump administration official who penned that 2018 New York Times op-ed warning about President Trump from the inside of his administration, well, that anonymous author has now written a new book about President Trump, one that will be released next month. It is distinctively an attempt to convince the nation to not reelect President Trump in 2020. CNN has exclusively obtained the cover of the book. It's titled, quote, A Warning. The book has been a closely guarded secret until this moment and will be released officially November 19th. The anonymous senior administration official, you will recall, had warned last year in that New York Times op-ed of an amoral, erratic, petty and ineffective President Trump. The author said that officials inside the administration occasionally worked to thwart the president's worst inclinations. The president at the time called the New York Times op-ed treason and suggested that then Attorney General Jeff Sessions investigate and find out who wrote it. A draft press release that I've obtained describes the book, a warning, as, quote, explosive with a, quote, shocking firsthand account of President Trump. The author will remain anonymous. Sources tell me that elaborate precautions have been taken to protect the author's identity and that the publisher and the literary agents have verified that the author is the same person who wrote the New York Times piece. Matt Latimer, the co-founder of the literary agency representing the author Javelin, also told me, quote, the author of a warning refused the chance at a seven-figure advance and intends to donate a substantial amount of any royalties to the White House Correspondents Association and other organizations that fight for a free press that seeks the truth. The book was not written by the author lightly or for the purpose of financial enrichment. It has been written as an act of conscience and of duty, unquote. Latimer refused to say whether or not the author remains part of the Trump administration. We have just reached out to the White House for comment. We will bring you their reaction when and if they respond. But let us first discuss uh, with our group right here. And Jeremy Diamond, as a White House correspondent, uh, President Trump responding to just an op-ed version of this, called it treasonous, uh, said that the attorney general should investigate it. I can't imagine that his response, especially as he's already besieged by other anonymous whistleblowers, uh, is going to be any more calm. No, I think it will probably be very similar. And in fact, I was surprised when you were just reading that the fact that this uh, author is going to remain anonymous with this book. I think that's highly, highly unusual here. Um, and, and also, it does feed into where the president is right now and the attacks that he has been launching against the whistleblowers who have raised complaints against him, uh, the other uh, administration officials who are raising concerns about his dealings with Ukraine. This is going to help feed into the president's deep state narrative, I think. Um, as, as he tries to make the case that somehow he is being undermined by this cabal of officials. That is not necessarily what this official is, um, but by releasing an entire book uh, it, uh, anonymously on that premise, it does kind of feed into that narrative from the president. However, I must say, looking back at the op-ed, so much of what that author wrote at the time still remains true today. When you look at the president's decision on Syria, you see here in the op-ed, uh, the author described the president's impetuous adversarial uh, leadership style. And, and we still do see that where the president is reacting mm -hmm. so, uh, um, you know, on, on the fly and impulsively. And so very much a lot of this remains true. I'm sure the book will have a lot of subject matter to cover. And, and Laura, uh, I, one of the big parlor games uh, a year ago, September, mm -hmm. September 5th, the op-ed came out, was trying to figure out who it was, a guessing game. Uh, but then also a lot of people looking at what the charges were that this anonymous individual is making and saying it sounds pretty serious. Right. And, and, and again, as Jeremy pointed out, I mean, there are things that in the op-ed that 
potentially will also be in the book that that have come, you know, to that we've seen examples from the president, whether it's that some of his appointees tried to stop him from making uh, certain impulsive decisions when it comes to foreign policy or other things. But I think that Democrats would probably I would assume that they would maybe want to stay away from this, maybe stay away from the book and not include it unless it has very specific details that then they want to start asking questions about, but pretty much keep it away from their impeachment inquiry that's ongoing right now. All right. Let me turn to the opinion side of the table. Uh, uh, Mehdi, I, I believe that you and Mary Catherine are probably on the same page on this. Not a, not a fan of anonymous uh, authors. No. And when this came out last year, as you know, Jake, I, I rarely agree with Donald J. Trump. But when he called this person gutless, I kind of agreed because I thought that if this person has all this information, is eyewitness to all of this kind of chaos and lawlessness, come out, say it in your own name, testify in front of Congress, talk to the media. There's an impeachment inquiry going on right now. Rather than writing books and giving away the money to, to the White House Correspondents Association, why not be part of the impeachment inquiry? Why are you not in front of the House uh, Oversight and Intelligence Committee? It was gutless then. And by the way, it was nonsense. The justification was that they're staying inside the administration to protect America from within, to be one of the adults in the room, they use that phrase, unsung heroes. The quiet resistance was the word used in that op-ed. Look at what's happened in the last year from the Mueller report, the obstruction of justice, the abandonment of the Kurds, strolling into North Korea with nothing in return. Where has been the thwarting? Where has been the steady state of quiet resistance? Even if I bought the excuse offered, it doesn't even hold water anymore. Uh, and Mary Catherine, your take. I just find it tiresome. Put your name on it. Put your name on it. It's a whole book. And then it makes your account more credible if your name is on it. By the way, these are not uh, hard criticisms, criticisms to make. I understand that Donald J. Trump is a person who will go after people for making criticisms of him, but a lot of people make criticisms of him every single day. If you have stuff to bring to the table, bring it with your name. It makes it more powerful. And by the way, his argument that there's a cabal of sort of secretive folks inside the administration and in career positions acting to thwart him while this guy is anonymously writing a book, possibly in order to stay on in the administration to actively thwart him, he sort of has a point. Well, we don't know if the person's in the administration or not, but I, but I take your larger this is, point. This has also been kind of the debate among some Republicans who don't necessarily like Trump's style, don't like the way that he governs, uh, but want to see his policies succeed and also have some concern for the country. This is the same argument that we saw from John Kelly, for example, the president's former chief of staff, General James Mattis, who Previously served as defense secretary. These were officials who were not only at times disobeying the president's orders or not carrying them out because they said, look, he'll forget about it by tomorrow. Let's just not do this because it's too crazy. This is kind of the, the these two factions that we've seen. We've seen the people who say, look, I want no part of this. And the others who say, look, I have a duty to the country to at least be some kind of uh, solid, you know, advice giver, you know, or some uh, sort of guardrail, some kind of guardrail. Exactly. Mehdi's eyes are going so far back in his go head. Away. I'm afraid he's going to scream. But, but these people, his, his these people, I'm offering the, I'm offering the perspective you, here. I know, I know. And you're mentioning things. names that drive me up the wall. I mean, John Kelly, Jim Mattis. I mean, Mattis came on your show, Jake, yeah. and he just wouldn't answer any questions about Trump. These people are not adults in the room. I hate that phrase. Uh, they are enablers. That is what they are. They have enabled Trump to be racist, to be reckless, to abandon people, to ethnic cleansing. They have enabled that agenda. They could help stop it by coming out and speaking out well, against I, it. They I, choose not to. I actually half sympathize with that argument and hope for people who could be an adult in the room, although I'm w with you that we don't see them that often. But still, just do the thing and don't parade around with op-eds and we'll make, books we'll make with stupid no jokes. Mattis comes out and makes jokes about it, right. but refuses to talk to you we about it. We have some breaking news right now.
And breaking news in our politics lead, uh, as the impeachment inquiry begins, uh, we are getting our first look at the opening statement of Ambassador Bill Taylor. He is the key diplomat testifying in the impeachment investigation today. Taylor, the top American diplomat in Ukraine, he raised concerns in text messages about whether or not the Trump administration was forcing a quid pro quo, demanding one. Let's go to CNN's Manu Raju. He's live on Capitol Hill. Uh, Manu, uh, you're reading this uh, opening statement. What, what does it say? Yeah, we have just obtained the 15-page, very detailed opening statement that raises serious questions about the president's actions and the reasons why military aid was delayed to Ukraine, military aid that had been approved by Congress. I'm going to read you a little bit of this uh, 15-page testimony that was delivered this morning. Uh, He is referring to a text message that that, uh, Bill Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine, had sent to the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. In this text message that we've already seen publicly, he says, we are now saying that security assistance and the White House meeting are conditioned on investigations. That was a question that Taylor asked Sondland response to call him. So he did. Now, according to this testimony, he says, during that phone call, Ambassador Sondland told me that President Trump had told him that he wants President Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. Now, he goes on uh, to talk more about his conversations with Ambassador uh, Gordon Sondland. He says that uh, Ambassador Sondland told him that, quote, everything was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance. He said that President Trump wanted President Zelensky of Ukraine in a, quote, public box by making a public statement about ordering the investigations. Now, Jake, Republicans have for some time, of course, said there has been no quid pro quo at all. This statement raises serious questions that there may have been a quid pro quo based on exactly what the top diplomat, the current top diplomat, the president's top diplomat to Ukraine is testifying that the president had that he had been informed that the president wanted this public declaration of investigations that could help him politically in exchange for releasing stalled military aid. Now, he goes on to raise some serious concerns about the the aid being delayed. Also, that a meeting that the Ukrainian incoming Ukrainian administration, the Zelensky administration, wanted to have a meeting in Washington. That had also been put on ice, and we have known separately that the president put that on ice until top U.S. officials had communicated with his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who had been seeking those same investigations, both into 2016 elections as well as into the Bidens. And it makes it very clear here the reason why the aid was withheld, according to what he had been told, what the top diplomat had been told, was because of this demand to to issue this proclamation that those two investigations that could help the president politically were made in Ukraine. Jake. All right, Manu Raja with explosive news there. We have a lot to talk about, a lot of breaking news what the White House is now saying about Bill Taylor's testimony. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back with the breaking news in our politics lead. CNN has just obtained the opening statement of Ambassador Bill Taylor, who is testifying right now behind closed doors on Capitol Hill in the impeachment inquiry. In his testimony, Taylor, the current top diplomat in Ukraine from the United States, says he was informed that President Trump wanted a public commitment, a public declaration by the president of Ukraine that he and his administration would conduct investigations that would benefit President Trump politically in exchange for the military aid from the United States for Ukraine. Uh, Let's discuss. And Laura, let me start with you. This, This testimony goes to the heart of what the impeachment investigation 
is about, in, in many people's views, and some Democrats say you don't need the quid pro quo, just asking a foreign country to do these investigations into the crazy conspiracy theory about the DNC server in Ukraine in 2016, or the investigation into Burisma, the firm that Joe Biden's son Hunter worked mm-hmm. for, that that's enough. But, but, if, but it's even worse, they say, Democrats say, if uh, military aid is a condition of doing these things for the president. Right. And so far, what we heard, not just from Man News reporting, but also from Democrats coming out of the, the testimony, is that Taylor did say that, that in instances when he was talking to Sondland and others, that military aid is what was being withheld. And that there was, uh, and he uh, backed up the text that we've seen already and was saying that, you know, there was a quid pro quo. And I spoke to Rep. Melanowski of New Jersey uh, just moments ago, and he was telling uh, us reporters in a gaggle that, you know, he pretty much hinted that uh, Taylor has taken very copious notes because he is a career official as opposed to a political one, and they are known to take very uh, good notes. Uh, also, Rep. Ruta of California described the atmosphere in the room uh, very, in a lot of detail. He said that members had audible gasps and sighs as Taylor was testifying, and he said that the body language of members hearing what Taylor was saying was, quote, wholly expletive. So. Yeah, holy expletive. So, uh, uh, Mary, Mary Catherine, I mean, the fact is this is a widely respected uh, diplomat, Bill Taylor, uh, asked to come in after President Trump had, had gotten the previous ambassador, uh, Yovanovitch, uh, mo- removed from the post, a Vietnam veteran. Um, this could be theoretically difficult for uh, even the president's staunchest defenders to, to dismiss. Yeah, I think it. I think it is, and I'm glad we have the entire opening statement, which I know was was quite extensive. Um, part of what I don't like about these proceedings is things leaking selectively about sure. it, so you don't get a full picture. In this case, I think you might get a more full picture. Um, and by the, I'd also like to say, like, if I were in this administration, I would take notes about everything all the time. Yeah. So, and maybe write a book about yeah. it. <laughs> With my name on it. Well, you put your, your name, name on it. it. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I, do, I do, will say I think there's a slight distinction between asking them to dig up dirt on Biden and the part where you ask to uh, investigate interference, which we do know there was some, not this weird theory about the servers, there was actual interference with the 2016 election by Ukrainian officials on behalf of Hillary and against Trump. And I think that sort of thing, having strings attached to it with U.S. foreign policy, is not the end of the world and is actually what Biden was saying about the corrupt, uh, the corrupt prosecutor mm. that he was going after. Uh, when it's about the integrity of American elections, we can attach strings to what we're doing for other countries. When it's about attacking your domestic political uh, adversaries, that's the real problem. Right, but but from all uh, intents and purposes that we, that we can determine, uh, Mehdi, it's about this crazy DNC conspiracy theory. I mean, that's what Tom Boster, the president's former yeah. Homeland Security advisor, said, like, I have, I tried to convince him this is, there's nothing to this, it's not true. It's not true. about whether or not Ukraine was uh, offering uh, damaging right. information on Paul Manafort, which, which clearly mm-hmm. there were people they in were. Ukraine doing that. Trump doesn't listen to intelligence officials. He listens to Infowars. So that leads to most of the problems we see. Uh, and Rudy, who listens to Infowars and weird uh, fringe blog sites where he brings printouts on TV to talk about them. I think the big point, which is a point you mentioned at the start, which is, number one, do you even need a quid pro quo? The idea of investigating Joe Biden or his son is itself, as many would argue, outrageous, illegal, unconstitutional, impeachable, etc. And then there's this issue of quid pro quo. My favorite moment of the last few days was when Mick Mulvaney went on Fox on Sunday and said, but I never said the words quid pro quo. That's what they're reduced to now. If you don't say those three words, there's no quid pro quo. Because that's not what it is. It's the act. And we knew from the moment the White House released its own transcript or summary of the transcript. This is why, as much as I enjoy all these hearings, and I think they're important and they add stuff, and the hearing, 
You don't need any of that stuff. There's literally the White House phone call summary where the president of Ukraine says, can I have some anti-tank missiles? And Trump says, I would like you to do us a favor, though. That's the quid pro quo. I'm, I'm done there. And he brings up the, fir- and he brings up the, the, and then he brings the, up the two things. The, the Ukraine the, and, 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 and says, and also. Yeah, investigate the election and the crazy conspiracy. And what about Hunter Biden and Brisbane? And what's, how's the White House dealing with uh, these allegations uh, and notes uh, from uh, this ambassador who, by the way, the Trump administration put in his current post as acting uh, you know, running running the U.S. embassy in Ukraine right now. That's right. And one of the major frustrations at the White House is that they haven't been able to get like a full read on what every single person is saying here because they're concerned about what uh, some of these administration officials, current and former, are saying. And what these House Democratic investigators are doing is they're slowly piecing together a, puzz- a picture of exactly what happened when this aid, from the moment that the aid was withheld till the moment that it was released, and what all of the reasons were around that. What we've seen so far is it's been largely uh, from the career folks on, on, on the State Department side and the embassy in, in Ukraine. What we still don't have exactly is the picture of what did the president tell his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, directly? What did the president tell Rudy Giuliani when they were meeting as they frequently do at the White House and the residence of the White House. So I think those are the pictures that the, the elements of the picture that we don't yet have. Um, the question is whether or not Democrats will need that or not to proceed. Um, certainly, this White House wants to have a better picture, though, of exactly what all of these uh, current and former officials are saying. And, and, and Laura, I think there's an open question as to whether or not we'll ever find out any of this information. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mick Mulvaney uh, is not likely to ever testify before the House impeachment inquiry publicly or privately. Uh, they'll assert executive privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've only been able to, the Trump administration has tried to block some of these individuals, such as Bill Taylor and others, from testifying. Uh, but they've, and the, and the House Democrats have had to subpoena them. Mm-hmm. And that's an, a big question, and one that some of the members are raising today, which is that at what point do we stop with the behind closed doors testimony depositions and then move everything to being public so that we proceed with the with the investigation with the proceedings with the impeachment proceedings because right now it appears as though the timeline for whether or not they will have a vote to impeach the president is continually pushed back and there is a fear among democrats of how close are we going to get to next year to the to really when uh voters are starting to head to the polls for the primary Okay, we're going to squeeze in a quick break. Uh, When we come back, more on the breaking news. Bill Taylor is sharing what could be explosive testimony in the Hill right now. And President Trump has used the word lynching to attach the impeachment inquiry. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, as a key witness testifies on Capitol Hill behind closed doors, President Trump is facing strong backlash from Democrats and some Republicans after comparing how he is being treated in the impeachment inquiry to a lynching, many pointing out the historical shame of lynching in the United States with the head of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congresswoman Karen Bass, accusing President Trump of throwing out racial bombs. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live for us at the White House. And Caitlin, what are you hearing uh, from the White House or the president's supporters about why he used such an incendiary term with such historical weight today. Well, Jake, back here at the White House, aides are struggling to really defend that remark. One saying publicly earlier that the president wasn't trying to compare what he's going through to one of the darkest moments in American history, though not really being able to expand any further than that. But if you're listening to Republicans up on Capitol Hill, some of them are distancing themselves from what the president said, including the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, the top Republican in the House who were saying that's not language that they would use. But there is one person who's defending the president's language, not only defending it. Earlier, Senator Lindsey Graham was asked multiple times about this. And not only did he not criticize the president over it, he endorsed his language. 
I think that's pretty well accurate. This is a sham. This is a joke. I'm going to let the whole world know that if we were doing this to a Democratic president, you'd be all over me right now. Yeah, this is a lynching in every sense. This is un-American. Now, Lindsey Graham is obviously from South Carolina. The other senator from South Carolina is Tim Scott. He's the only black Republican senator. And earlier he said that was not language he would use, but essentially he said he understood the president's frustrations, Jake, with this impeachment probe. But of course, there have also been questions about what a distraction this is from the pressure that is on the White House right now as these people like Bill Taylor are going up to Capitol Hill and testifying. A lot of that frustration coming from the White House is because they don't have a White House lawyer present for those testimonies that are happening. So they're not fully read in on what exactly that's being said about the president's conduct here. But also you've got to look at that new CNN poll that came out today that shows 50 percent of Americans now endorse or now approve of impeaching and removing the president from office. Those are numbers that they are paying close attention to back here at the White House. All right. Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. Uh, let's uh, bring in Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell uh, of Michigan. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. Uh, what's your reaction to Bill Taylor's opening statement in his testimony? He says he was informed, told that President Trump wanted a public commitment from the president of Ukraine to conduct these investigations that would help Trump politically in exchange for military aid. So, Jake, good to be with you. Again, I was not in those hearings. It is reports that we are hearing of what he said. So, I, and I think it's good that these hearings are happening in a classified setting because I think this whole investigation matters because of what it's doing to our national security. But if true, if that is what he said, it should be deeply disturbing. We cannot have somebody using our country's national security, our resources for personal gain or to undermine an election. So I'm continuing to let the committees do their work, get the information, be as transparent as possible, tell the American people what's happening. But if these reports are true, it should bother all of us. Just this afternoon, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, denied telling Trump that his call with the Ukrainian president was perfect, despite the president's assertion that McConnell had said the call was perfect. Uh, What do you make of that? I think that the president's got to start to be very careful. I think this is a very solemn time in our country. I think it's a sad day. But, you know, I tell people that when I was young, I'm not old, but I was younger, in college, high school, college, I worked for a Republican senator from Michigan. And I flew with him the day that he came back to Washington and called Richard Nixon and told him he had to resign. And I'll never forget that airplane ride and the things he talked to me about ethics and morality. And I remember how all the Republicans were totally against impeachment until the facts became such that they felt and knew what their oath of office meant and where the duty was to the country. So it's not only this particular comment, but even the fact that the leaders of both the House and Senate actually had the courage today to speak up about inappropriate language in a tweet or Twitter. I I, I think... The president needs to be careful because I think a lot of Republicans are becoming very uncomfortable about where they are. I want to ask you about this new CNN poll um, that's out today. It finds that half of the American people polled uh, support not only impeaching President Trump, but removing him from office. Forty three percent say no. Fifty percent say yes. Uh, A New York Times Siena College survey in six swing states, battleground states, including your home state of Michigan, finds that the majority, 53 percent, do not support impeachment and removal. It's 53% oppose, 43% support. Um, Obviously, you're very 
tuned, attuned to what your constituents in Michigan think and want. That's a state that President Trump won. Uh, why do you think there's such a difference? And does that concern you that maybe Democrats are moving too fast even? I'm going to give you two different. First of all, I don't trust polls. You and I had discussions before the last election that I thought Donald Trump could win Michigan and everybody thought it was crazy. And you were reading polls. I remember that. that. Absolutely. So these are merely polls. But I will tell you that I'm talking to people from one end of my district to the other that have very different feelings. And I think one of the things that we really have to worry about, it's in the Mueller report. We're hearing it from intelligence agencies across the world that Russia tried to interfere in our election. Russia is trying to destabilize governments. Part of what we are seeing here is people are trying to divide us as a country. And I was reluctant at first, while I have deep concerns about much of what he did, until a whistleblower came forward and a President Trump appointed inspector general said, it's credible, it's urgent and of danger to our national security. People understand that. And I think that as an elected official, my job is to protect the Constitution, rule of the law, nobody's above the law. But I also have to make sure we protect our democracy. And the fundamental foundations of our democracy are under attack. And I think people are just trying to sort it out, which is why we have to do some of these debriefings in a classified setting. I'm not in them. we got to get the facts. Nobody's above the law. But as much as we can make transparent so everybody understands it and we do not allow Russia and other evil governments that want to divide us to do so. And I think it's very complicated. Congressman, I want to ask you about a story that uh, CNN broke at the top of the hour, which is uh, the author, the senior administration official from the Trump administration who wrote that op-ed for The New York Times last September 2018, uh, has written a book. It's titled A Warning. Uh, It's coming out uh, November 19th. Uh, It is, uh, the literary agents and publishers say, it is definitely the same person. He or she is remaining anonymous. They won't say whether or not the person still works for the administration. Uh, But it is clearly, uh, as stated, according to sources close to the book, um, an attempt to convince the American people, especially Trump voters, do not vote to reelect President Trump. What do you make of it? read the book. I obviously it's not, it's not out yet. I haven't read yeah, the book so, either. So we're speculating. But I think we all need to pay attention. I love this country. And you know, I'm not a Democrat or Republican first. I'm an American. And I think we worry, need to worry about forces that are dividing us. I, every day, am home. And I get yelled at by everybody. People are more engaged than they've been. People are more on all sides of the issues than they've ever been. There's a lot of intense and emotional feelings. You know, last week I was emceeing something, and it, it quite frankly brings a group of business, labor, nonprofits, and education together. And I'm a co-chair of the group, and I talked about it being more important than ever, and maybe we all could learn from President Bush and Ellen DeGeneres. I got fouled into the ladies' room and by these two young people, and they're screaming at me about defending George Bush. And I looked at them and said, you are too young to hate. You can't have hatred like this in your... And we've got to stop this hatred. We've got to respect each other. You can disagree. I, I, good disagreement can get me energized. People have different life experiences, different perspectives. But the hate that's in this country, the fear that's in this country is destroying us. And we have to fight against that. All right, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, Democrat from Michigan, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Breaking news just moments ago, the ceasefire between Turkey and Syria officially ended. This as Russia cements more control in the region than ever before.
Welcome back. We have breaking news in our worldly. The temporary ceasefire between Turkey and the Syrian Kurds has just officially expired. And moments ago, Russia's president, Putin, and Turkey's president, Erdogan, announced that they have reached an agreement for joint patrols along the Turkish-Syrian border. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh just traveled back from Syria and joins us now live from northern Iraq. And Nick, what does this agreement, the Turks and the Russians, for joint patrols, what does that mean for the situation on the ground? What does it mean for the Syrian Kurds? It's extraordinary how wide-ranging this agreement between Moscow and Ankara actually is. We're 40 minutes away from uh, the ceasefire having expired now, but this deal seems to essentially eclipse that. In fact, the Russian defense minister overtly called out the United States to kind of back off and allow this new deal to take effect. Noon tomorrow, we are supposed to see the Syrian regime, with Russian military police backing them up, going along the border between Syria and Turkey and taking control of it, and asking the Syrian Kurds, formerly America's ally in the fight against ISIS, to pull back their fighters and weapons to a distance of about 20 miles or so, 30 kilometers in the deal. Turkey gets to keep the chunk of territory it's essentially annexed inside of Syria between the towns of Tel Abyad and Ras Alain, deep 30 kilometers, 32 kilometers, 21 miles or so. And then importantly, after six days expire in which the Syrian Kurds are given to pull back, then these Russian and Turkish joint patrols kick in. Sound familiar? Well, it's the same mechanism the Americans had before that fateful Trump phone call with Erdogan, which set in uh, motion the Turkish incursion. But that patrol will go 10 kilometers deep inside Syria, essentially making Russia the peacekeeper here and giving Turkey kind of a say in how Syria's border functions with it. Importantly, they say this will keep the Syrian Kurds, who Turkey considers terrorists, away from their border. How do Syrian Kurds feel about it? Well, frankly, after the betrayal they feel the United States dealt them over the past fortnight, this is probably the lesser of the evils because the Syrian regime, who are stepping in to help them, have Russia's backing and are now their new ally to some degree. There are some exceptions, like the major town of Kamishli, which is a Syrian Kurd stronghold, is not part of this deal. And we don't know about the fate of Kobani, another Syrian Kurdish population center too. But my Jake, this is extraordinary. This is Russia and Turkey calling the shots. And bear in mind more broadly, this is NATO's southern border, Turkey's southern border. And now Russian military patrols are going to be going up and down it for an indefinite period of time, enforcing a peace deal that America once tried to enforce, but have since had their own president withdraw them from. Extraordinary times, Jake. Seems like not just a big win for Erdogan, but a, a big win uh, for Putin. Uh, Nick Payton Walsh uh, in uh, Iraq. Thank you so much. Today, the Iraqi military announced that the U.S. service members withdrawing from Syria do not have permission to stay in Iraq, a statement that seemed to contradict comments made by Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Let's get right to CNN's Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. And Barbara, what does this mean for the U.S. service members uh, in the region? Well, for all of those military personnel that crossed over the border into western Iraq from Syria, it means get out of Iraq. It's hard to see how soon that might actually happen. In an interview with CNN's Christian Amanpour, Defense Secretary Mark Esper tried to explain it all. We're conducting a phased withdrawal, deliberate phased withdrawal from northeast Syria. It began with the what we call phase one, which was in the immediate zone of attack. Now we're under phase two, uh, which is from the northeast quarter, if you will. And then eventually we have other phases that will, will draw all the forces out. Uh, we will temporarily reposition in Iraq pursuant to bringing the troops home. And so it's just one part of a continuing phase, but eventually those troops are going to come home. So they are coming home? They will come home. None will stay in Syria? Well, we, right now the president is authorized the, the uh, 
that some would stay in the southern part of Syria. And if you believe President Trump's contention that the fight, the U.S. fight against ISIS is over, that ISIS is defeated, well, earlier today, a top U.S. envoy said on Capitol Hill, there may be up to 18,000 ISIS fighters and adherents still spread out between Syria and Iraq. Jake. All right, Barbara, start the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue seem to be consumed by the impeachment inquiry. But what do voters think? We travel to a key state to find out. Stay with us. Our 2020 lead now in new CNN poll numbers that show the, that the impeachment trend line is moving in a direction that President Trump will not like. Half of the American people polled now say that President Trump should not only be impeached, he should be removed from office. That number was only 36 percent in March of this year. But does the national mood match what voters in Iowa think? Howard County, Iowa, is one place that flipped from blue to red in 2016. And Miguel Marquez talked with some folks on the ground there to find out. Aaron Schatz, fourth-generation farmer in Cresco, Iowa. This is corn that we've chopped, and then you feed it to the cows. And... His world, a wife, two kids, 1,500 acres of corn and soybeans, right. milk and beef cows, two dogs, and a goat named Gus. He's one of many voters in this northeastern Iowa county who supported Obama twice, then voted for Donald Trump. I don't see, I guess, anybody in the Democratic field that I am too comfortable with yet. I guess we got to wait and see who comes out. So you're open to voting for a Democrat? I'm open, but not probably by a lot. Trade and health care, his biggest concerns, impeachment doesn't rate. Does impeachment play into your decision about him or your feeling about him at all? Not yet. But it hasn't broken through it for you? No, it hasn't yet. You know, I guess to me the things seem kind of minor, I guess, as of yet, you know. Minor in that all politicians do this sort of stuff? Yeah, I'm sure they all do it. I mean, you think you can dig up dirt on everyone, you know. Business owner Barb Gardner also voted for Obama, then Trump, something she says she probably won't do again, but not because of impeachment. I kind of still like him, but yet I don't like what he says. I don't like his his the way he presents himself. It's voters like these that help propel Donald Trump into the White House. Howard County is unique, flipping from Obama in 2012 to Trump in 2016 by more than any other county in the country. A 41-point swing. What's it like to be a Democrat in Howard County, Iowa these days? Um, a lot of people hiding or not talking about it. The chair of the Democratic Party in Howard County says impeachment complicates her job of convincing independents to vote Democratic. If they actually bring something that's criminal, that's worthy of impeachment, I can see people, those independents going, okay, there really is something. The county's GOP chair says trade policy will move votes in Howard. Impeachment right now? It all becomes a hum. It all becomes a, a drone, background noise, yeah. and uh, um, we've almost become come to expect it. Now, we spoke to lots and lots of voters here, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and they all say variations of the same thing. What the president is accused of seems slimy, it seems shady, but they do not think at this point that it sounds like it's an impeachable offense. Jake? Vox Populi, Miguel Marquez in Cresco, Cresco, Iowa. Thank you so much. Appreciate the report. Breaking news, CNN has obtained the opening statement of the key witness testifying on the Hill right now. That story's next. Stay with us. 
Democratic lawmaker calls it a sea change in the impeachment probe. The lead starts right now. Tale of the texts. The diplomat who called President Trump's Ukraine policy crazy in a text message testifies on the Hill. And now CNN has his stunning opening statement. As a very shaky ceasefire expires, Vladimir Putin meets with Turkey's president. What decisions are these two autocrats making with U.S. allies in harm's way? Plus, breaking right now, that anonymous senior Trump administration official from the New York Times op-ed last year, now coming out with a book that serves as a warning for the country not to vote for President Trump. This hour, the White House response. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the special edition of The Lead, White House in Crisis. And we begin with breaking news. CNN has obtained the 15-page opening statement today from perhaps the key witness in the impeachment inquiry so far, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, explaining how the U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, told him that President Trump wanted a public commitment from Ukraine's president, that Ukraine's president would publicly state that he would open investigations that would benefit Trump politically in exchange for a White House meeting and U.S. military aid. According to Taylor, those investigations included both the conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that interfered in the 2016 election and a probe of Burisma, the company that Vice President Joe Biden's son Hunter worked for at the time. As CNN's Sarah Murray reports, Taylor testified President Trump wanted President Zelensky, quote, in a public box by making a public statement and ordering the investigations. A key impeachment witness telling investigators today he was told aid to Ukraine would not be released until Ukraine publicly announced the political investigations President Trump was demanding into the Biden family in 2016. The top U.S. diplomat to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, offered those details in his opening statement obtained by CNN. He explained why he suspected Trump of taking part in a quid pro quo, something the president has denied. Taylor told investigators the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sunland, talked to him by phone. Quote, during that phone call, Ambassador Sunland told me that President Trump had told him that he wants President Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma, an alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election, Taylor said. Ambassador Sunland also told me that he now recognized that he had made a mistake by earlier telling the Ukrainian officials to whom he spoke that a White House meeting with President Zelensky was dependent on a public announcement of investigations. In fact, Ambassador Sunland said everything was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance. Ukraine's involvement in 2016 is a conspiracy that has been proven false. And Burisma is the Ukrainian energy company that hired former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. You could uh, hear a pin drop, literally, uh, as the ambassador uh, has laid out in his opening statement. A source familiar with Sunland's testimony said Sunland was only speculating about the political investigations. Sunland also told Taylor the aid may have been frozen because of corruption generally or because the Europeans weren't giving enough money to Ukraine. Taylor's testimony fills in the gaps between his text messages with other diplomats over the summer, in which Taylor raised alarm over the delay in money for Ukraine. As the new Ukrainian president was vying for an in-person meeting with President Trump, Taylor texted Sunland, are we now saying that security assistance and White House meeting are conditioned on investigations? Call me, Sunland replied. 
Taylor sounded the alarm again on September 9th. As I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. Hours later, after speaking with Trump, Sondland replied, Bill, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear, no quid pro quos of any kind. Taylor's appearance behind closed doors left some Democratic lawmakers rattled. This is the, my most disturbing day in Congress so far. Meantime, Republicans said they're still waiting to hear from witnesses closer to the whistleblower who set off the impeachment inquiry. These are the people with supposedly the firsthand knowledge who gave the whistleblower the information that formed the basis of his complaint. Now, this makes clear this opening statement, how uncomfortable Taylor was about accepting the job originally and how concerned he was about these back channel diplomatic efforts. And in his opening statement, he continues to note that these back channel, essentially diplomatic channels through Rudy Giuliani were the ones that appeared to be taking over rather than what the top diplomat in Ukraine was trying to do on behalf of the U.S. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Uh, let's chew over all this. And Phil Bond, let me start with you. Uh, is this testimony significant? If so, why? Yeah, pretty for, for a couple of reasons. The big ticket item here is we knew basically if you look at what the president said in the phone call, we knew the president was squeezing the Ukrainians inappropriately, unethically for basically opposition research. The question about the financial linkage was a little fuzzy. This gets us more than one step closer. And I think Mr. Sunland has some more questions to answer based on my quick read of this. That is direct linkage between our taxpayer dollars and the president's request for the, for the Ukrainians to do opposition research. Second thing and last thing I'd say is this names a lot of names. It gives the Democrats on the Hill a lot of potential to say, I want to talk to other people named in here who can corroborate this reporting. This is pretty rough. And, and Laura, I want to read one part of this uh, testimony from the, the top diplomat in the Ukrainian embassy, in the U.S. embassy in Ukraine. He describes a call with Ambassador Sondland, who was running kind of the point when it comes to the, the president's uh, push for this. And he says, quote, Ambassador Sondland tried to explain to me that President Trump is a businessman. When a businessman is about to sign a check to someone who owes him something, he said, the businessman asks someone to pay up before signing the check. And then he goes on to say Ambassador Kurt Volker, who was a special envoy to Ukraine, he used the same terms. What do you, what do you make of that? I make of it that there is he was not mistaken that he thought there was a quid pro quo at stake here that he is not mistaken, that this was not something that was a one-off. There was a calculated, concerted effort to have taxpayer dollars, not the check of a businessman writing from his own slush fund, writing from his own checking account, but from the powerful purse of Congress that is fueled by taxpayer dollars. And so what you have here is when we think the idea of the text of this is crazy, how can this be conditioned in this way? Guess what? He had reason to believe that based on a series of events. And what was shocking to me, I mean, I'm reading through it still, just notice the detail of this document. This is somebody who has receipts, several of them. It's hard to undermine his credibility or say maybe he got some aspect wrong. He kept notes. He relayed them. It was very, very clear that the reason he took this position in the first place is because he knew the importance of Ukraine and their vulnerability. And it's being exploited. He saw it. He reported it. And he called him on it. And that's interesting, Mary Catherine, because... One of the things that I think we lose sight of is this almost $400 million in military aid to the Ukrainians. One, the Ukrainians desperately want that money so they can defend themselves against Russian separatists. And two, it's not President Trump's money. It's our money. It's the American people's money. It's taxpayer dollars. Yeah, and that's the crux of the inappropriate nature of this. That's been obvious from the second that they said, yeah, this is the thing we did. Here's the transcript of us doing the thing. <laughs> now, wh now, whether there was like an explicit quid pro quo or how far that went, the money did get released. Those are sort of open questions, which is why we're working on this. But the Trump White House, as usual, is like, well, yes, we did the thing. 
here's the transcript. So right. you, you sort of have the goods from the beginning. On Everyone this. does it. Get over it. Yeah, and although Mick Mulvaney attempted a, you know, yeah, you're goddamn right, I ordered the code red. Wait, I didn't say I ordered the code red. He no, attempted that. And yesterday. I didn't say the words quid pro quo, which is right. a crucial part of his defense. I think this stuff has been damaging since we saw the text last month between Sondland, the ambassador to the EU, uh, and this guy Bill Taylor in Ukraine, where he said, I think this is crazy, and Sondland texts back, let's stop talking about it on text. Right. Because of all the notes. And because this guy keeps That's notes. a paraphrase, but yes. Yes. And the tr- yeah, it has to be a paraphrase. Otherwise, well, Trump said, will say, I made up words. He said, call me, I think is what he said. No, no, no. The exact words is he said, I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. Okay. But the, <laughs> but the, but the interesting part is, that now you have this 15-page testimony. I think Laura's right that it makes it much harder for them to undermine a person like this. That doesn't mean they won't try. This is the Trump White House. Um, I would be interested to know how long he keeps his job once Trump has this digested into bullet points and colorful pictures so he can understand what's been said about him. He'll be furious. Um, but, you know, it's clear. We, we, we talked about this before. The phone call summary establishes that there was a quid pro quo. What we're now doing is just backfilling and just making clear how it all worked out, yeah. what, what amount of money was at stake, who said what, where, but it's clear from the beginning that this is an impeachable offence. There was a quid pro quo. And even without a quid pro quo, asking someone to investigate your political rival is outrageous. Well, and I want to put this in context because to to the average American voter out there who's thinking, okay, so if this is not impeachable or if this is accepted, let's put it that way, what does the United States look like in a future where it's okay for the president or the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee or the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to use his power and taxpayer dollars to push foreign governments to do things like that. What does that look like? Well, let me make this real simple. In the past few days, you've had Silicon Valley come out saying we're already seeing Iranian and Russian interference in American elections. If you're the Russians or the Iranians, you'd say, of course, we're interfering in elections. The Americans have invited people to participate. The president said on a public podium, why don't the Russians get Hillary Clinton's emails? I would say, I mean, just a bit of irony here at 4.30 in the afternoon. The president squeezing the Ukrainians on corruption while he's holding up money so they can investigate a political rival is really precious. I mean, let's push them to investigate corruption, except at the White House. I think I'll leave that one aside. Phil, you know how much Donald Trump cares about fighting corruption. (laughs) Well, you know, one thing he did mention in this letter specifically is the idea that he said he did not realize, he thought that maybe the withholding of the aid was about a meeting with the White House, which in his mind, I think he thought, well, perhaps that's as far as you want to take it. But he actually says, it was the first time I realized that the security assistance, not just the White House meeting, was conditioned on the investigations into Burisma. He's talking about Burisma. He's talking about Hunter Biden and his ties. This is actually very clearly what the whistleblower complaint had to say, which, again, corroborates another aspect of it, of the White House's end as well. And now this person in this very credible document does it again. And Mary Catherine, I want to just raise the issue of Hunter Biden for one second, because uh, and this is a point that the, the, the Intercept has make, made uh, eloquently also, which is putting aside for one second, if we can, the president's lies about this and the president's behavior about right. this. Uh, and the prosecutors have said there's no evidence of any any criminal wrongdoing by Hunter Biden. But still, that's the whole situation with him being on that board. That stinks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's swampy. It's yeah. one word for it. And I think he's admitted to that and said, you know, I'm step, he's stepping down because it's not a good story. Well, Biden so, doesn't want to talk yeah. about it because it's not a good story. Um, there is something there. It's not the thing that Trump thinks is there. And it is, again, inappropriate to have a foreign government right. uh, trying to investigate your domestic political adversaries. We have people domestically who can do that. Jobs Americans will take. Right. <laughs> I just don't want to pretend that that, that component of it yeah. is okay, because yeah. of course it is. And President Trump's sparking a new racial controversy in the middle of all of this, because why not? Why not throw a, a, some racial, racial logs on the fire? He called the impeachment probe a, quote, lynching. 
Then, is Bill Taylor's stunning new testimony enough evidence for the Senate to convict on impeachment? Well, we're going to talk to one of the potential jurors. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead today. As a key witness testifies in the House impeachment inquiry, President Trump is lashing out, comparing how he's being treated in the investigation to a, quote, lynching. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders tweeting, quote, No, Mr. Trump, lynching was a campaign of racial terror by white supremacists who murdered thousands of African-American men, women, and children. If you are nervous about an impeachment process, then you should not have violated the Constitution, unquote. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, while the condemnation from Democrats was swift, many Republicans are publicly backing the president's term lynching. President Trump has derided Democrats' impeachment probe as a witch hunt and a fraud. But today he drew swift condemnation after he went even further and likened it to a lynching. Trump tweeting that the impeachment inquiry is without due process or fairness or any legal rights as he urged Republicans to remember this in the future. But critics said he should remember the past. Democrats immediately rebuked the president for evoking the racist history of barbaric white mob murders of black people. He knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly how it would come across. Why would you use the term lynching? Why would you say that? Members of Trump's own party distanced themselves from his words, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Given the history in our country, I would not uh, compare this uh, to uh, a lynching. That was an unfortunate Uh, choice of words. Tim Scott, the only African-American Republican senator, had this to say. There's no question that the impeachment process is the closest thing of a political death row trial. So I get his uh, absolute rejection of the process. Um, I wouldn't use the word lynching. The president did find a vocal defender in Lindsey Graham the other senator from South Carolina who endorsed his choice of words. So, yeah, this is a lynching in every sense. This is un-American. At the White House, aides insisted Trump wasn't comparing himself to one of the darkest moments in American history. He is receiving zero due process from Democrats on the Hill. That's what he's talking about. Are we going to talk about something else or are we going to continue with the tweet? Ask me about Syria, please. The president's tweet, coming as pressure on the White House over the probe, is intensifying. Hogan, is this intended as a distraction? A steady stream of current and former officials have continued to testify under oath on Capitol Hill, despite a White House vow not to cooperate. Today, a new CNN poll revealed that 50 percent of Americans now support impeaching and removing the president from office, though his approval rating remained steady at 41 percent. Now, Jake, when Jim Jordan, another one of the president's allies, was asked about his comment today and whether or not it was appropriate, he said he thought that the president was frustrated over this whole process with impeachment. But that's something we've heard from Republicans today. They're frustrated with the president using this word because now they're having to defend that instead of attacking Democrats for what they say is an unfair impeachment inquiry, instead focusing only on the president's use of the word. All right, Kaylin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, who's a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator Hirono, what's your reaction uh, to the testimony from Bill Taylor? Uh, He gave an opening statement we obtained, and and, uh, he says that he was told that President Trump wanted a public commitment from the president of Ukraine that Ukraine would conduct these investigations into matters that the president wanted uh, investigated that would help him politically, such as into the Bidens, et cetera. 
in exchange, directly in exchange for military aid for Ukraine. What's your reaction? Apparently, Mr. Taylor took really accurate uh, uh, and extensive notes. And his testimony, from what I've read as to the context of his, the content of his testimony, is that he corroborated and provided context of what the president meant when he said to the Ukraine president, uh, I'd like a favor, though. Uh, one of your Democratic colleagues um, today called Taylor's testimony a, quote, sea change. Um, do you think that's true when it comes to Republicans? I'm, hold, I'm not exactly holding my breath because they're still busy trying to defend the president, uh, president's actions. And, you know, so uh, I, I do think, though, that this testimony is uh, further corroboration that the, that the president asked a foreign government to get dirt on a political opponent for his political and personal gain. Congressman Jerry Connolly, a Democrat of Virginia, said it's more urgent now that Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, testifies. But the White House has made it clear that they're not cooperating with the investigation. The people who have testified have done so because they were subpoenaed. Uh, one of your colleagues, Congressman John Garamendi uh, uh, of, of uh, Maryland, I believe, suggested that if witnesses won't cooperate, the sergeant of arms may need to take them off and haul them to the Capitol jail. Is that a, is that a serious option that Democrats are talking about? I don't know if that's a serious option, but the fact is that the White House and the president is stonewalling every effort um, on, on the part of the House to subpoena or to have witnesses testify. So that's stonewalling. That's what we should be focusing on. And uh, I, I think that the House would consider adding the, that kind of behavior to their articles of impeachment. I, I want to ask you also about the news uh, that CNN broke uh, at the top of 3 o'clock uh, Eastern. Uh, that the anonymous senior administration official from the New York uh, from the Trump administration who wrote that New York Times op-ed in September 2018, that individual is now writing a book. It's called A Warning, and it basically uh, it, it's still anonymous, um, but it, it makes a case against reelecting uh, President Trump. How do you feel about uh, senior administration officials or former senior administration officials doing this kind of thing anonymously? Well, I wish that they didn't feel as though they have to do these things anonymously, but uh, regardless, they are privy to how this president behaves and the kind of priorities that he puts forward. And so it is what it is. And they, th they think that the best way for them to get the points across is anonymously. At, at some point, I hope that they'll all come forward. There's no question that the president continues to engage in all kinds of behavior that we can totally disagree with from a policy standpoint. And then, of course, I mean, that includes his Muslim ban. That includes his precarious decision to remove our troops from northern Syria. Uh, the, the, the issue of the potential resurgence of ISIS as a result of that action. That's on the one hand. There are a whole bunch of policy reasons why this president should not get reelected. And then there's the constitutionally um, mandated impeachment process, which is what the House is engaged in. And by the way, can I just say that when I heard the president use the word lynching mm. with regard to what he's going through, you know, to, to liken a constitutional inquiry process to mass murder of blacks by, by, by murder of blacks by mass mobs in our country is just, I was so appalled that I hardly had any words to, to say. And for those who are coming forward to 
to defend the president's use of that word, I just want to say to them, do you not know anything about the history of our country and the racism in our country? These are the uh, I'm just appalled. The only person I've heard actually defending the president's use of the term is your colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham. <laughs> um, so uh, what would you well, say? Well, maybe to everybody else will just not go there. That would be good. But what would you say to him if he were in front of you right now? Because he has used the, the term. He said it is a lynching. And he said, quote, it is a lynching in every sense of the word, unquote. I would hardly have the words to, to say that, uh, to Lindsey, you know, how, uh, because he has uh, turned 360 on first uh, criticizing the president when he was running for a president himself and then turning around and being one of the prime defenders of the president. So, you know, Lindsey is, uh, he's going to say what he's going to say. I s totally disagree with him. And I, I am just so uh, saddened uh, and appalled by Lindsey's continuing defense of the president. All right, Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. Aloha, and thank you so much. Aloha. Support for impeaching President Trump and removing him from office hits a number that could rattle his White House. The new CNN poll number is next. Welcome back. More now in our politics lead. The Republican reflex is to defend President Trump, no matter what. But today, more cracks, this time over his likening of the impeachment inquiry to a lynching. That's not the language I would use. It's very clear that what <clears throat> the Democrats are doing here does not go across, does not have due process. It's not fair in the process. It's not something that this House has done ever in the past. Why wouldn't you use that language? I don't agree with that language. It's pretty simple. Okay, well, that's something. Uh, Laura, let me go to you. Uh, what do you think? President Trump de declared on Twitter today that the impeachment inquiry was unfair to him, like a lynching. What was your response when you saw that word? I was irate and disgusted and, frankly, dumbfounded because the president hasn't been castrated. He hasn't been dragged into a square, hung by a chain, like a noose around his neck, possibly tortured, having somebody put oil all over his body and light him a flame and reduce him to as if he was swine over a roast. Because that's what happened at lynchings in America, over 4,000 of them, and not just African-Americans, but three quarters of them all happened to African-Americans. And it was for things like unpopularity, let alone unfounded crimes and allegations. The president has over a million words at his disposal that could be more apropos to talk about what he perceives to be a baseless allegation against himself. But to reduce lynching to somehow thinking that it's if I am inconvenienced by a charge against myself, then I'm involved in a lynching. I don't like it when um, now Justice Clarence Thomas used it talking about the Anita Hill hearings as a high tech lynching. I didn't care for it when Bill Cosby spoke about it because it was inconvenience to him of allegations. It cannot be reduced in this way. And here we are a few weeks from Halloween when the president's favorite term has been a witch hunt. That might have worked better in this instance. It may have been a more parallel charge. But to have the president yeah. of the United States, given all the things he said about race in this country up to this moment in time, still be completely inept at understanding the racial dynamic in this country, we don't reduce things in that way. And lynching is certainly not one of those categories to reduce and use as a colloquial punchline. Manny? 4,743 people, I think, according to the NAACP, murdered, lynched in a domestic terrorism campaign by white supremacists. And Trump uses that word to describe impeachment. I'm as disgusted as Laura is. I'm less dumbfounded because he's a racist. And when his back's up against the world, he tends to do lots of racist things. The question is, did he uh, tweet in this way 
because he was nudging and winking at the racists and white supremacists in his base who turn up at his rallies? Or did he just tweet in this way because he's typically impulsive and racist and rude and crude on Twitter? It's an eternal mystery with Trump. You're never quite sure if it's one or the other or both. I would say, though, Lindsey Graham is the real villain of today. Even in fact, more so than Trump. Uh, while you said, let me interrupt you and we'll come right back to you. Let's play the sound of Lindsey Graham uh, defending the president's use of the word blinching to describe what he's going through. So it shows a lot of things about our national media when it's about Trump. Who cares about the process as long as you get it? So, yeah, this is a lynching in every sense. This is un-American. Go ahead. He says it's a lynching in every sense, is what he said. Every sense, apart from the lynching sense of killing someone of, in the graphic way that Laura just described. It's a ridiculous thing to say from a man from South Carolina where I think 164 people were lynched in 36 different counties. Graham was born the month before 14-year-old Emmett Till uh, was murdered in Money, Mississippi. I would say he should be ashamed of himself, but clearly Lindsey Graham has no shame anymore. Do you think that, I mean, I, I hear Trump defenders sometimes saying he does things like this to get us chasing this distraction instead of talking about, for instance, the Bill Taylor testimony, although we are capable of talking about both. But do you think there's any rhyme and reason to it, or do you think he, he just doesn't even think I that? I mean, there way? is a bit of that sort of agent of chaos stuff, but here's the thing. If you think it's a distraction, you don't have to defend it. Right. And in this case, you absolutely should not. It is ludicrous. It is a... Impeachment is a constitutional process, and if he thinks this part of the constitutional process is, being, is treating him unfairly, he's welcome to talk about that. But we have all agreed as a society that we should not minimize lynching. That is, that is one of the acts in this country's history that we have all agreed is super egregious, yeah. and that should be... That should be a societal standard. I'm not in favor of a, a bunch of uh, speech codes and whatnot, but that's a, that's a pretty fair one. Um, and he just throws it out brazenly. It's it, was about, it was about a decade ago, I think. I might be wrong on the timing, but I think it was a decade ago that the United States Senate took up a bill to formally apologize uh, for lynching. Yeah, I, I think we're giving the president way too much credit here. Look, he can't figure out what the name of the secretary of defense is. He sent a ridiculous and embarrassing letter to the Turks that suggests just what his former secretary of state said, Tillerson. He's undisciplined and lazy. He can't spell check when American kids are occasionally, I assume, reading his tweets, can't bother to spell check them, gets off the phone and says we're out of Syria without talking to anybody, decides on the, on the fly in Southeast Asia to go see the North Koreans. He's undisciplined and lazy. I don't even think he thought about what this meant, and I'm not sure today he still understands what lynching is. You agree with that? Is that what I, I'm more in the camp of like he just heard the word lynch. Like he does not think through the implications. I'm in that camp as well, but I'm also in the camp that says he's a clear racist. So it's always a coincidence that when he does the chaotic things, it tends to be racist things that he goes for, like send her back in the summer, send them back. That was his choice to go after the squad. He could have done anything else. I'm in the camp that says the president of the United States is asked to lead the United States of America and should be aware of the implications of his words. And time and time again, he steps on a rake he already knows is there and then asks us to excuse and give a benefit of the doubt when he has a bump on his head because of it. And this is an instance when the president of the United States should know better. Lindsey Graham should know better. And frankly, I think that they do. But really, this issue for me is what you're talking about as well, Mary Catherine, is the issue of impeachment is actually a directive that the founding fathers gave and said to check an abuse of power. You have this as an option. You can exercise that. The president seems to disregard the notion of the constitutional mandate of, of checking power, separation of powers, as being too inconvenient for him to take seriously. That's also an issue. All right. Uh, everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about. As a ceasefire expired minutes ago in northern Syria, Russian President Vladimir Putin 
may start calling the shots at the Turkish-Syrian border. Stay with us. Outside. In our worldly today, a meeting of the authoritarian minds. Russian President Vladimir Putin met with his Turkish counterpart, President Erdogan, in Sochi, Russia today, as the Turkish Kurd ceasefire expired. The two leaders agreed to joint patrols along the Syrian border, filling the void left by the United States. As CNN's Fred Pleitkin reports, this meeting also comes as we're learning new details about Putin's push to sour President Trump on Ukraine. Our military was depleted. Today, as President Trump continues to justify his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from northern Syria, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan have already carved up the area amongst themselves. A triumphant Putin announcing the agreement. We have managed to reach very important, if not fateful, agreements to resolve this very acute situation on the Syrian-Turkish border. While American troops got pelted with rotten vegetables and rocks as they left Syria, Russians will now be taking their place. Moscow's forces, instead of American troops, will now be patrolling the border region together with the Turks. And the Russians will ensure that armed Kurdish groups, America's former allies in the fight against ISIS, retreat from Turkish territory. Both sides will take necessary measures to prevent infiltrations of terrorist elements, Russia's foreign minister Sergei Lavrov read from the agreement. America's withdrawal, another major win for Vladimir Putin, courtesy of President Trump. We never agreed to protect the Kurds for the rest of their lives. It comes as the Washington Post and the New York Times report that both Hungarian President Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin tried to encourage President Trump to take a hostile view of Ukraine. Officials familiar with the testimony of career diplomat George Kent before House committees last week told the Washington Post Trump's conversations with Putin and Orban reinforced his view of Ukraine as corrupt. These conversations all happening before President Trump asked Ukraine's leader to investigate Joe Biden's son on that now famous July 25th phone call. Top Democrats like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi confronting President Trump about Putin's influence in a heated meeting at the White House just last week. I also uh, pointed out to the president I had concerns that the L road seemed to lead to Putin. In Syria, all roads now lead to Vladimir Putin. Now, Vladimir Putin, Jake, certainly isn't wasting any time. The Russians tonight already announcing that they're going to move additional military hardware into northeastern Syria simply because their area of influence is increasing so much. The Russians also telling America to get out as fast as possible. The one leader that Vladimir Putin has spoken to tonight, Jake, has been Bashar al-Assad, who, no surprise, has voiced his satisfaction at the deal that Putin reached with Vladimir, with uh, Erdogan tonight. Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in Sochi, Russia, for us. Thank you so much, Fred. The author of the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times last year has a new warning for America. It's coming in a new book, and the White House just responded. We'll bring that story to you next. Stay with us. With the breaking news, sources telling me that a book will soon be published in November by the anonymous senior Trump administration official, that person who wrote the 2018 New York Times op-ed describing what he or she called President Trump's amorality and who detailed an effort inside the administration to thwart President Trump's worst inclinations. The book about President Trump is titled A Warning. It's due to be released November 19th. A draft press release I've obtained describes the book as explosive with a, quote, shocking firsthand account of President Trump. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham responding to this news by saying, quote, 
takes a lot of conviction and bravery to write a whole book anonymously. We should also point out that Matt Latimer, who uh, works for the, the agency that represents Anonymous, uh, tells me that uh, they won't tell me whether or not the person still works for the administration. Uh, they're going to keep his or her identity secret and uh, that most of the money or a sizable portion of the money is going to be given to the White House Correspondents Association and other organizations that fight for truth. Your reaction, uh, Phil? Boy, h- how do you publicize this book? You come out, you can't do press interviews because the person's anonymous. Well, you can do print, I guess. I suppose you can, but you certainly can't come talk to Jake, Jake, Jake Tapper. You can't defend your book because somebody's going to say, how can you defend it? Not in person. But the real story, I think, if you're the publisher, you've got to be sitting there saying, I hope the book, when you buy the book, is published at a time when no other story will trump the book that we're publishing. And what do you get? Right in the middle of a story that is more compelling with people who aren't anonymous and is playing out for free on TV every day. I think this is bad timing unless they have a great story. I don't know how this beats what's happening in impeachment. What do you make of it all? Well, here's why I think it's bad timing, because you have the arguments about why to protect the anonymity of a whistleblower. And you have the idea of you want people to be the adults in the room to be able to come forward in these very safe ways and safe channels to be able to communicate the things the American people want to hear to check any abuse of power. And now you have it in in a way being undermined by the notion of anonymity should just be for everyone in the entire planet. And there was a reason why whistleblowers are protected, because we want people not to be punished for providing information. I think it actually weakens an argument about saying why we want to have anonymity in other areas if we allow people to have it this way. Now, having said that, I'm going to read the book cover to cover. And I'm going to um, probably look at it in a credible way and think about, well, what are they really saying about this issue? But if you're a member of Congress right now, Adam Schiff, for example, trying to pick a whistleblower, you're saying to yourself, how do I make this argument in a dual fashion and retain credibility in both airs? It's hard. And and so one of the other things that's interesting is it's entirely possible that this person will be subpoenaed through the publisher or through uh, the literary agents, because if, I mean, I don't know what's going to be in the book, but presumably there will be de- details of things that the House investigators will want to know more about. And they shouldn't have to be subpoenaed. I, so, I hate agreeing with Stephanie Grisham in the White House, but <laughs> this is a cowardly way to do, you know, to do your resistance and warn people. And this idea that this book is going to say, don't reelect Trump. Well, if you don't want Trump to be reelected, why are you in the Trump administration? Because you're not doing any good in terms of restraining him, as they claim they were doing last year. It's a book based on one anonymous source. I don't know. I don't know how much credibility that has. If the guy remains anonymous, put your name on it, then we have more. All right. Uh, Strong feelings here coming up. One part of America could now be facing a tough choice between saving a key part of the local food chain and generating power. Stay with us. Resident killer whales that live on Chinook are... In our Earth Matters series today, what was once in a seemingly endless supply, the Chinook salmon, a critical link in the Pacific food chain... Well, they're now endangered in the Pacific Northwest, which has caused officials to cancel the fall fishing season in the Columbia River. And, as CNN's Bill Weir reports, the salmon shortage is causing residents to have to make a very difficult choice. As much as air or water, so much life in the Pacific Northwest depends on salmon. Over 130 species rely on nature's original food delivery. But fewer salmon are surviving the heroic swim from open ocean to spawning streams hundreds of miles inland. And that means trouble for two creatures that really love the king of fish. Killer whales and us. In your grandparents' day, the Columbia Basin seemed to produce a never-ending supply and salmon the size of people. But those big June hog Chinooks are extinct now. And this year, numbers were so low the fall fishing season was canceled. 
The estimates are about 17 million salmon would return to the Columbia every year. It was the greatest salmon fishery in the world. And um, now it's about a million. And most of those are hatchery fish with weaker genes and less fat than their wild cousins. So the southern resident killer whales that live on Chinook are starving. There are only 73 of this kind of orca left on the planet. And after a grieving mom pushed her dead calf around Puget Sound for weeks last summer, it rekindled a decades-old debate. Salmon versus dams. What would you say to folks who say the best thing that could happen for these animals in this ecosystem is to take these dams down? Yeah. I'd say for the Army Corps of Engineers, we're, we're looking to do the right thing. We're looking to operate uh, the dams that are here uh, while we're taking a close look at, uh, at what the future of these dams are uh, in the region. To find their birth stream, many Chinook coming out of the Pacific must navigate at least eight dams, four on the Columbia, four on the Lower Snake. These are the four that would likely come down first. But removing a dam takes an act of Congress and will meet stiff resistance from special interests like wheat farmers who need dams and locks to float their crop to market. And since Bonneville Dam alone can provide carbon-free power to a city the size of Seattle, the debate divides lovers of wildlife on all sides. I think we're trying to do our best to improve conditions uh, through the migration channel, uh, through the river for the salmon, trying to make sure that um, power and fish can coexist here in the Columbia Basin. But 13 species of fish remain threatened or endangered, even though the federal government has spent over 16 billion trying to make dammed rivers more fish friendly. Yes, the salmon can cross the fish ladders, but the river, the Columbia River, is too hot. Um, the, dam the reservoirs behind the dams have caused this hot water problem because they're stagnant, absorbing a lot of solar radiation. I see. And then couple that with climate change, and climate change is pushing that over the edge to make the river too warm for salmon to survive. And it's not just the rivers. Scientists are worried that the infamous blob of warm water off the Washington, Oregon coast is back. So we're kind of wondering, Wow, is this, is this happening again? And it's kind of alarming because it's so close on the heels of that past event. Dams have long been concrete symbols of human ingenuity. But now, with entire ecosystems in hot water, how much longer can they stand? Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, uh, arguably the greenest governor in America, is being very careful on this issue, Jake. Uh, he's, he's planted a task force to study the killer whale decline, but it's just a little sample of when it takes 100 years to break the planet, putting it back together is really, really complicated. All right, another excellent report from Bill Weir. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the lead. At the lead, uh, CNN, our coverage on continue. CNN continues right now. Thanks so much for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.